I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, it seems like people are having longer productive lives and longer productive collaborations than they used to. I was just noticing that before Whole Earth, there was before Long Now, there was Whole Earth, and Whole Earth goes back to 1968. And as early as 1976, there was an issue of a Co-Evolution Quarterly, which is sort of a supplement to the Whole Earth catalog. But then uh, Peter Warshaw was so much in the thick of that whole process that uh, we had a, a guest-edited issue on watersheds. Um, I was just reminiscing about this. This is 41 years ago. I was just reminiscing with Peter about it. And um, one of the things he did was a watershed quiz. He called various people and asked them where their water came from and where it went to when they flushed it and uh, what the name of the watershed they were in was like. And so Wendell Berry and Lynn Margulis and Rusty Schweikert and Gregory Bateson and so on. Um, Paul Krasner had interesting answers. Editor of The Realist, uh, Peter asked him, when you turn on the faucet, where does your water come from? And uh, he said, from my naive sense of trust. Warsaw <laughs> <laughs> said, well, that's a fine action, answer, actually. Uh, when you flush the toilet, where does it go? And, and Krasner said, I never flush my toilet. <laughs> Peter said, <clears throat> well, do you know where and what your drainage basin or your watershed might be called? And Krasner said, downhill. That's what Warshall does. Um, he provokes us into realizing our connection with time, culture, nature, science, every aspect of biology, water, all these connective things. And tonight we see how light is another connective. Peter Warshall. Hope this works, because uh, I got hugged so many times, I think I got my sound system wrong. Um, I want to, first of all, thank Stuart, who, of course, gave me the opportunity to work on Whole Earth Catalog and a lot of other opportunities throughout, really, my whole life, so, after I came to California. And um, Ryan, who, whose enthusiasm got me here tonight, um, last night, this whole PowerPoint collapsed, uh, and there was nothing, and then uh, Danielle and Austin helped me put it together. Um, as Kevin Kelly used to say when I was at Whole Earth, I had one of the most non-linear minds he had ever met. And tonight you're going to see the combination of a non-linear mind with a bricolage of various slides, so uh, please Bear with me. Um, I'd like to um, dedicate this to Arthur Okamura, who is a Bay Area artist of great talent and elegance, um, who really, when I first came to California and had no money, uh, hired me as his assistant at the California College of Arts and Crafts to go around with him and show his students 
uh, what it was like to look at the same flower if you were a maniacal naturalist like me or uh, an artist like he was. And so Arthur has passed on, but um, this picture is really typical of one of his great talents, which is to see the bright light that goes through the fog or the clouds on a gray beach out in Bolinas. Um, he also did this beautiful painting, the same thing. He just had a wonderful eye for what uh, I call local luminance locales. Um, these are two pictures of single cells that went as far as you could go to try to be like an octopus or a human eye. They have a, a cornea, they have a retina, they have uh, the ability to move the eyeball around, which is its own, almost its complete body. And these two uh, unicells were sent to me by Lynn Margulis. Uh, and she said, your talk on color and light is just only 500 million years old. You have to really start getting realistic, Peter. Uh, life's been around for 3.8 billion years. And so what was supposed to be a one-year book has now turned into a two-decade book because I had to fill in the gaps for 3.85 billion years to, <laughs> to 500 million years. And um, so uh, Lynn also just passed on um, for whole earth and for us. She was this brilliant kind of imaginative uh, person that... Um, I knew since 1963, and um, so I want to dedicate that to both Arthur and um, Lynn. My job tonight is kind of uh, the naturalist task, and I've never really defined it, but I thought that you should know that a naturalist is someone who tries to empty their mind of a human-centered universe, of a human-centered thoughts, of human-centered agendas, and instead tries to work towards a Gaian way of thinking about the world, um, in this case, a Gaian aesthetic. At the same time that you're doing this, you're, of course, aware that you're human, and you can never really easily escape the human worldview as you're doing it. So it's kind of a tension that you create as you walk in the savannah or in the Sinaloa and Thorn Scrub about how to look at um, the world, not from your point of view, but from the point of view of any creature you're walking by. What the other thing a naturalist does is to try to think of images um, as color patterns in a slice of time. In other words, we don't know exactly what color others are absorbing and receiving, and if they come in blobs or patches. But you start, uh, the naturalist considers all species in space-time as equally beautiful. And after looking at that species for a while, and some people, like myself, fell in love with birds and then jaguars and then an eight-ounce squirrel. But you, while you're looking at them and considering them, beautiful, if you don't think they're beautiful, then you think of how you colonized your mind with a certain critic's adjudication to say that this thing is somehow not as beautiful as it looks. So, as, as this, 
The sun pours forth photons. They take about eight minutes to get to the Earth before they meet Jane Mansfield and Sophia Loren. And photons themselves have no material substance. Um, and you can only know about them when they entangle with matter or flesh. Uh, they are nevertheless envisioned both as waves and as particles or wavicles by primat primatic applied scientists. And they're ultimately mysterious to those who have and dwell in a poetic imagination, be it painters or poets. And so there's always been this kind of metaphysical connection between art and science that very few people talk about. And that's the, when you say the energy of a painting, what do you actually mean by the word energy? But if you ask what is light, you get into the same confusion as a scientist. This was noted, by the way, by a Tang Dynasty art critic named Hyo So, um, who called that energy qi. And so what we're seeing right now is through our ignorance of what energy is, that Western thoughts and Eastern philosophy are actually coming together. I'll get you off this. <laughs> Back to the sun. Um, this is important because um, you'll hear in this talk the difference between the pragmatic and the poetic. And those two organizations of thought between the pragmatic and poetic are really what is the uh, dialogue that's going on about light, color, and life. On the pragmatic side, the concern is how do you accept, separate the signal from the noise? How do you get the object isolated from the background? And how do you look at the anatomy of the eye and its importance in doing that? In the poetic end of it, you're organizing your thought by knowing that light is knowledge at a distance. There's a separation, it's not touch. And at that distance, what happens is after a billion years or so, um, that distance and from the light becomes part of the body, either in a circadian rhythm connected to the sun or moon, but also in an anticipation of what can happen because you've been expecting all this going to the light or going to the dark, uh, if you're a Eugelina, for instance. And the expectation, the anticipation of what, where the light is becomes an expectation, which becomes a kind of yearning. And we don't know at what point in the history of the earth and expectation became yearning. And yearning then became what is the basis, let's say, if you're Rumi, of human life, which is desire. And so what we see when we see all this, that desire then, in, as it gets very elaborated, but maybe an octopus, we don't know, uh, gets into hope and transcendence. And so images are these things that excite the inner self to do something in the world of how to be in the world that go from anticipation, expectation, yearning, desire, hope, and transcendence. I'm going to... Here's... Um, the pictures will get prettier and more like microcosmos as we go on. <laughs> um, 
the reason they're here, so here are the four stages of aesthetics. You have to consider what your energy source is for light. You have to consider how it's been modified by the biosphere. You have to consider how it interacts with matter, the aesthetic surface, and how it's received by the frog or Sophia Loren um, to have a receptive, creative life. One thing that's really clear about the pragmatic and the poetic is that they're inseparable. Because when you are trying to figure out what the object is from the background, all that background is still going into you. It's still becoming part of the inner self. And that's what certain scientists who are adventurous would call the bodily unconscious. And that bodily unconscious only emerges once again in a way that we don't yet understand to uh, become what we call the creative. So I want to really emphasize that what comes in, the receptive, is equal to the creative. And people have not emphasized what goes in and how, it, how the receptive becomes the creative. And it is impossible not to have these extras in the visual system. Let me say that they, those are what Wallace Stevens calls the restatements of poetic organization. The sun becomes the, gets restated by biospheric light as it goes through the clouds and the ozone and all that. It then gets restated as it entangles with any aesthetic surface, a leaf, a butterfly, the front of your eye. But then it gets restated again as it enters your eye. And, you know, people have said El Greco had a certain kind of stigmatism, and that's why his people were so long. I don't know if that's true, but, but it does, light does get restated in the light harvester. And then it gets restated as receptive, reorganization, and creative. So let, let's start with the sun. The sun is an initiator of almost all sugars on the planet. It's an initiator of sweetness and life, of prosperity. It also is an illuminator of the commons, and the, there's an aesthetic commons in the whole planet. It's also a shaper of the body. So you get certain colors to be high, other colors to be conspicuous, get a certain kind of eye. And finally, I'll talk about how it's a governor of the, through the aesthetic commons. Um, the sun has always been in human mythology until the electric light bulb, um, honored for being independent, for being very powerful. It takes up one one hundredth thousandth of the sky dome, and yet you can't look at it for more than five minutes without seriously damaging your eye. It's extremely powerful. It causes drought. It causes, right now it's causing greenhouse, helping cause greenhouse gases. It also is very constant. For the last 500 million years, the light reaching the outer surface of the biosphere has not changed by more than 1%. The only thing that has changed a little bit, and that's only up to 10%, is the ultraviolet. So it's been incredibly constant. Some biologists would argue that it's been constant for one billion years. In that one billion years, that constancy has allowed a common aesthetic to evolve on the planet. Twice in the history of the Earth, the anti-sun, darkness, has been challenged. 
The first time it was challenged was by bioluminescence. You can see bioluminescence in caves, you can see it in, at nighttime, and you can see it especially in the deep oceans. So, um, those two, that rebellion is where life decided that light was so important that it would generate it itself. And it does it through luciferase, which is a kind of enzyme named after Lucifer, um, that um, only life has been able to evolve. And it evolved it, not for life at first, but you'll find in both human aesthetics and in the planetary aesthetics that one organism will co-opt something from another organism to create beauty or forbidding looks. In this case, um, these mushrooms co-opted a antioxidant, something to keep the uh, mushroom from uh, essentially burning itself up meta metabolically. And it probably, no one knows when that first happened, but around 250 million years ago, um, a whole group of organisms started to co-opt luciferase in many different forms in order to uh, glow. Um, and that glow is different from the sun. It's a matte color, it's weak, it's, it tends to only be associated with the dark of the moon. Um, and the rebellion happened 40 times in 40 different major phyla. And um, it is no longer used as an antioxidant, but is used for display. So let me just go through. Um, on land, of course, we have the firefly and the glowworm. Both of these have so evolved that they now can mimic the signals, the light signals of other species. And when a male from another species comes, it eats it. So we're beginning to see one of the things that's true throughout the history of the aesthetics of the planet, that danger and beauty always go together. And what we found is that right now, when art is shown in galleries or in museums or in churches, it's in a safety zone. And so that tension that was so much part of our evolution has been essentially lost. And we don't understand that tension of beauty that comes with danger. And we'll see that all through this talk. It's a, a major theme. Uh, at the same time, uh, the oceans are 90% of the biosphere that, and by volume. So in the deep waters, we have things like, sorry, we have things like uh, the squid here, but the squid did not evolve an enzyme. What it did is it ate a glowing bacteria and it created inside itself a little world where the glowing bacteria could live well so that it could then use that glowing bacteria as a lure for its own feeding. So what we're seeing here um, then is that that mushroom, by the way, its light can be seen by another mushroom on a flat surface five miles away. And Phycomyces has actually uh, been shown to grow towards the other mushroom at a distance of five miles. So here we are in the deep ocean with all the different bioluminescent. But what I wanted you to look at, uh, I don't need to use the, uh, is that white 
space off the Horn of Africa. That white space is all bioluminescent organisms. When they first were found mostly by sailors from Yemen, they claimed that it was the sperm of whales. Then they began, it began to appear in Europe on rotted fish, and they claimed that the devil was attacking Christ. When hens laid an egg that rotted and bioluminescent bacteria grew in it, uh, they put the hen on trial in medieval periods. And they had to decide if this hen had actually um, gotten in touch with the devil. And then at one point, which is really strange, the story flipped and became the story of the goose that laid the golden egg. So what was terrifying became terrific. Um, we, we also saw it in that um, not knowing what this was, people like Descartes thought it was because the oceans shook and the friction caused the uh, bioluminescence. But we can easily see here, uh, you're seeing on the left, is the underside of a shark. And the shark is creating that bioluminescent uh, throughout its body. On the right, you can see in the upper one, the lantern fish. You can just see the lantern and the vague outlines there. And all this other, it would take too much time for me to go through. But uh, bioluminescence was this incredible rebellion. The second rebellion, of course, was the rebellion of the human lamp and the human fire. And that started about a million years ago when Homo erectus started to control fire. So for a million years, we were look, humans have been staring at fire. Look on the right and you'll see that that's, that spectrum is the same spectrum that um, the sun is most active as visible light. So because they were both incandescent bodies, fire and the sun were very closely related. And you had emerging out of uh, the center of Africa and the upper Nile, you had the whole idea, and this always happens, whenever there's something beautiful or some beautiful thought, it's colonized. And it's colonized usually by politics and power. Well, the origin of the Sun King period of human uh, history started in the place where there is the most sun, right about the equator, and moved up the Nile, became part of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, etc., Canaanite, uh, sun king. They were sun queens, by the way, and they got their even mosaics of sun queens, but they got rapidly suppressed. Instead, what human beings did is they switched from fire, wood, grass, torches, to oils, gas, incandescent light, fluorescent light, LEDs, sodium vapor, mercury vapor. And this just shows you how they are not the same as sunlight. And so we began to have a change in the source of light and what we were seeing through the source of light. And that was a major change starting in the 1880s where the light really got to be different. Uh, when I was in Bolinas in politics, a huge debate occurred about mercury vapor lights. They were too blue, sodium vapor was too orange, and which one should we have in town and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
what I want to say here is that there was a period of time when fire was predominant and materials, this is for Malcolm, um, and when people were making their objects out of, for display out of local materials. And then all of a sudden, the light source changes the color when you get electricity and the objects began to change because they would look different. There's a wonderful story about Ruthko and Philip Gustin going into uh, Ruthko's galleries and he would walk in, the first thing he would do is walk over to and turn off half the lights because they were fluorescent lights and they made his paintings look too blue. And they would stand there and there and the owner would stand at one corner and as soon as Philip and Ruthko uh, left, he turned them back on. But that was the sensitivity to your light, light source and the changes of color of the surface. Um, this was really important because as you have ponds near street lamps, uh, as you have new lights going up all over the world, and you can, you've all seen the satellite pictures, things begin to happen. These are salamander eggs, and inside the salamander eggs are chlorophyll. And the chlorophyll produces the oxygen that allows the young salamanders to grow. And the salamanders actually transmit it with a particular genome that goes with it. But now under light, all of a sudden the chlorophyll is working at night as well as during the day and the salamander eggs are not hatching. So um, I wanted to say what reflective light does. Here's uh, bird eggs. Uh, I don't think if I can do this here. Right there is the creative act in a bird, in a hen. What happens is the egg comes down and then at a certain point, the uterus does a fresco. It takes out calcium carbonate, starts to make it, and in the last two to three hours, it colors the top surface. So when the egg comes out, you have all these different patterns, usually totally unique, but the light that's coming off it is from a surface that's reflective. Here's a human fresco, and underneath you can see the layers of calcium carbonate and the blue pigments that um, form all aesthetics. Well, in the 60s, the whole thing changed. James Terrell, Robert Irwin in LA, all started saying, well, why should we use reflective surfaces? Let's use emitting light lamps for creating aesthetics. And this has been, I would say, the unknown amazing change because now that we've switched um, to an aesthetics based on new sources of light, we have a new parallel to bioluminescence, which was done 250 million years ago. But what we see is that everything now will be turning into screens. There won't be reflective surfaces. There'll only be emitted surfaces. And as we see that, um, we don't really know what, as I said, receiving is as important as creating. And if you're receiving light from screens and not from reflective surfaces, how is that gonna change what human beings think about creation? And there's already evidence that it's actually causing 
different developments of parts of the brain because people are only looking at emitted light. They're not looking at reflective light. I have no idea what that's going to be. But I want to just end this little section by saying um, that as the world urbanizes and electricity, we are changing the way the world governs. And not only are we losing lots of insects to lights on the street, but on that lower left here, you can see a daphnia. And that daphnia is in almost all ponds, lakes and parks, and everything like that. And it is attracted to light. And it usually only acts during the day when there is uh, photosynthesis going on. And now they're coming up at night and using up all that energy to swim around at night where if it's sodium vapor light, there is really no photosynthesis going on or mercury vapor. And so we're changing the ecology of the, in ways we have no idea what's going on. In the middle is the lesser water beetle. It's one of my favorite beetles. It actually has a deep desire to land on red cars. <laughs> it loves that, the polarized red light. And when it does, it lays its eggs on the red cars. And the eggs are very acidic, and uh, especially for lowriders, are, are just really a pain. Because that where the eggs are laid, it eats into the five layers of lowrider paint. Um, on the right is a hawk moth. Hawk moth has just recently been shown. It can actually tell colors in starlight. It is one of the few creatures that can actually distinguish colors in starlight. And of course, now it has no ability to have that special niche because that niche is being taken over by urban lights. So besides being a source of light, what we see in the evolution of the Earth is a refinement of, t of uh, tonal contrast. And tonal contrast is best understood in terms of like the eclipse is the biggest shadow we ever get on Earth. And, um, but it starts out with shadows. And what, well, let me go back if I can. Uh, it go, it's go, the sun has these particular characteristics. It, it has night and day, it has, it, but there's only a single sun. There are other planets we're finding with two suns. It travels across the sky dome. Despite Copernicus, it, life doesn't care that the sun is the center of the universe, or the, I mean the center of the solar system. Uh, it's like the Beatles song goes, uh, the fool on the hill sees the sun going down, but the light in his head sees the world spinning round. And although the world is spinning round, the fool sees the light, the sun traveling through the sky. And I would say almost all creatures do that. So there's that pragmatic and poetic again. And I'm afraid the poetic is controlling life much more than Copernicus. Um, also, you have to understand that there's a top-down irradiance that, you know, we're lucky we have the sun is on top of us, casting it down and works with gravity so that we understand up and down by the shadow that's cast. And also that the sun is at optical infinity. So by the time the sun rays get here, they're in straight lines. 
This, of course, was the obsession of the Renaissance, um, which loved perspective, loved straight lines, loved doing all their paintings that way. But few people realize that bowerbirds in Australia and New Guinea understood that a long time ago. And what they did in order to attract uh, a mate is they piled up big bones and bigger pieces of gray stone further away. And so it narrowed really fast and created a perspective that drew the female uh, hen, bowerbird hen, into the boudoir. They call them other things, but it's a boudoir. Um, so, um, so back in eight, 1880s, um, the, that's on your left. Um, this particular Japanese print uh, came as wrapping paper to Van Gogh. And it was at this moment that Van Gogh understood that you didn't have to paint shadows. Shadows, in fact, um, were only in European art for 500 years. Uh, no Asian art has cast shadows. The first cast shadow painting I could find, the, the one on the right, was done in 1856 after seeing Western art. So the whole idea that, of the cast shadow um, was, is really a peculiar thing in art. But there was a dialogue again between the poetic and the pragmatic. If you look at a slanted sun, you get this kind of shadow. And that cast shadow is ominous. It could be a predator. It could be, it could be something that is dangerous. Again, the danger in beauty. And so what we find is that various creatures, like this Australian lizard, uh, created flaps to hide the shadow. Well, artists did the opposite. They wanted to make, a, make the object more three-dimensional, so they added the shadow. And again, that lasted, I think, um, de Chirico was the last one to try. He made very symbolic shadows, and then they kind of disappeared from the art scene. Uh, here again, you can see uh, the caterpillar top lit by the sun is very obvious because it creates the tonal contrast with the belly. On the bottom, by putting a shade over it, you can see that it fades out more. And in fact, a lot of caterpillars have darker tops so that they can equal out the light. And again, uh, the artists were doing the opposite. But notice the two kinds of shadow, the cast shadow and the modeled shadow of the body. Both of those have been absolutely identical with opposite responses. So someone like Tiepolo, not liking cast shadows at all, it's a tiny one under the foot, um, actually just drew from model shadows. And if you look at the fish, the top fish is top lit like the caterpillar. The, the one, the, set, the middle fish has a dark back like most trout have. And if you can see it on the bottom, when you put that in the sun, it evens out and the fish disappears. So we have that 2D, 3D, and I can go, you know, it's a long story, but uh, we have that 2D, 3D dialogue always going on between the pra pragmatic and the poetic in, in the history of humans and the history of the earth. The other thing about the sun 
is that it is not sunlight that actually hits the Earth. It's a thing I call biospheric light. And you're not going to hear it because I don't know anyone else gave it a name. But um, what happens is two different kinds of changing light. Uh, on the left, you see an early dawn. And on the right, you see three different kinds of atmospheres creating three different colors of the landscape. The blue, of course, being caused by fog and rain. The bottom is from a savanna in Africa. Uh, because of the way the sun sets, it creates almost a red light that goes through the savanna. And then uh, in the middle is the green, blue-green light of tropical rainforests. So, um, and we saw authors of Polinus. So what we have here then is a history of background and foreground and what makes something attractive, what makes it bland, what makes it something to avoid, forbidding. And what we understand in the history of beauty, and this is going to be really contrary to academics, is that the understanding of beauty must start locally in these kind of local luminance locales. You can't start with a grand view of beauty because beauty is within these changing contexts. And so anyone who wants to get into what, um, how creativity takes place has to go into the particular locale and see what bird have what colors in the rainforest, in the savanna, and how that relates to this kind of light that's being shown. Um, the local light, well, I'm not going to... Um, here, here it is mechanically. Um, these are all the tomatoes of the same color, but if you put different bulbs on them, again, you get different light colors. Again, um, you can look at the four boxes. Uh, the box on the upper right is actually daylight. All the others are uh, bulbs like the yellow one is sodium vapor, that change the light as you're going on. And so we're seeing that light is, that, that there's an impermanence in beauty, that beauty isn't this universal one thing that only happens in the human mind. I'm not gonna, um, I just wanna quickly go through this. These are the ones in the ocean. <coughs> one of the great stories here that started maybe 3.2 billion years ago, um, was that one-celled critters had received light day and night, day and night. The uh, day length was only seven hours. It wasn't 12 hours. The Earth was still spinning really fast. And so what happened is cells began to entrain that light in themselves. In other words, it became part of their genome and part of their mechanism of knowing when, what time of day it was, when, what moon it was. But that um, circadian rhythm came in contract, con well, I would say, in contest with the shading of the ocean, which had so many phytoplankton that now it was darker in the ocean than it had been before. Not only that, but now predators were beginning to happen around two billion years ago. It's a really long periods of time. And um, the number of 
living creatures on the planet was beginning to die. And as the rivers came down, they were bringing organic matter, giving the ocean a yellower color rather than that light blue color uh, of the tropical seas. All this meant is that the changes that were going on were the origins of one source of discrimination and discriminatory awareness. All of a sudden, the creatures that could discriminate between what was circadian and what was caused by organic matter, what was caused by phytoplankton shading, all of a sudden had a great advantage because they could adjust their levels in the ocean and again, danger and beauty, they could then have a longer time of survival um, by light being the driving force for discriminating awareness. On land, these general lights also began to shape, and this is a part of the sun that is a shaper as well as an initiator. And animals were shaped by the kind of sun and by the local luminance locale that they were in. So these are kind of obvious. White sands produce white creatures. Grass produces the mixed, and the dark lava rock produces that. What is interesting of what's going on right now is that scientists are becoming odd artists. Uh, they're decorating birds with red splotches. They're putting, uh, a friend of mine many years ago, put those little bands for, on uh, white-crowned sparrows out in Point Reyes. And when it did, the whole mating system changed. Some of the white-crowned sparrows were cool. They had red, yellow, and green. And others were not so cool because they had blue, white, and black. You know. And so all of a sudden, we thought we were just identifying the birds so we could be better, better scientists. Instead, we were changing the whole aesthetic world of the white-crowned sparrow. So here is a, a really wonderful scientist named John Endler who um, took zebrafish and decided just to take them into safety, to take them away from the danger of being in the outdoors. And in doing so, he suddenly wound up with a myriad kind of patterns because there was no art critic hanging around with a big jaw to say, you don't look good. And so all of a sudden we have, um, I just wanted to give you an idea of what happens when you let loose in a safe region with no local luminance locale, you, can, you understand there's a lot more variety going on in there, a lot more potential for creativity than you would otherwise have noticed. Um, we're going back here again to the sun. I'm always going to return back to it. And the yellow is the sunlight at the top of the atmosphere. And uh, the red is the sunlight that actually reaches the Earth. What this shows, for those who aren't into it, uh, the t is the size of the wavelength of the color. You consider yourself back in Bolinas, sitting on the bar, sandbar at the head of the lagoon, and some days the wavelengths are real slow and real long, probably came from New Zealand, and you can't get onto a board and do anything. Other day, and that would be red light. Other days, the waves that come in are very rapid. Uh, in fact, too rapid 
to find a crest that you could ride without another crest bumping into it, and that's blue, violet, and ultraviolet light. And in the middle, you get a good ride. So, um, so what we see here in the visible is that um, these are the wavelengths that most penetrate through the atmosphere and also are the wavelengths that humans use mostly and many other creatures. But notice that on the outside is the ultraviolet on the, and it's very energetic, more energetic than blue. And on the other side is the infrared. And so what life likes to do is take this free energy from the sun and absorb it into its body and use it in some way with no bodily harm. And so the self over these 3.8 billion years have been forming to do exactly that. And so uh, pigments, pigments are the mediator or the interface between the outer world and the inner world of the self. And the light comes in, it, will, uh, it hits the pigments, it entangles with the pigments, some light is cast out because it's too energetic and would blow the circuits, other light is too weak and can't get in there. So what we're finding, uh, and this is the hardest part, is to stretch from the visible and understand that other creatures see clandestine colors. The clandestine colors, uh, that's a human eye on the top, and what a human would see, the bottom is one of those bees that much more beautifully shown in microcosmos. But what it didn't show because it only used visible light is that bees cannot see into the red. They can't see into the red because they have crystal eyes. Our eyes are little pockets of the ocean. They have the same refractive index. We've taken the ocean and encapsulated it. So bees having developed a whole other way of seeing kind of more like pixelated crystals cannot the energy of the red wavelengths just can't get through. Instead, though, notice that below the 400 that it can get the ultraviolet. And humans cannot do the ultraviolet because our ocean is so small that we can't um, mitigate or lessen the power of the ultraviolet light before it hits our retina and would blow it out. So we have this shifting. It's not an odd color. It's just part of the normal world. Most birds, uh, many reptiles, a few uh, crustacea, uh, a few fish, and many insects see and have the ultraviolet as just one of their colors. In doing that, if you take the red out and you shift into the ultraviolet, of course, we don't really know what that looks like. So we don't know what ultraviolet is. But notice how the flowers would change in tonal contrast. Here's pictures. Uh, in the ultraviolet to show you um, just the difference in colors. The bottom one is a carnivorous plant, um, and it actually, if you look at the white section of it, which is, uh, well, the green section is how it looks to us. And notice the little red marks on the edge of the tips is to attract the fly or the insect who is not seeing it as red. But if you look at the next one, is seeing it in the ultra, seeing it in the ultraviolet with a different color at the end of these little tubes. So this is just to show you a few. Um, the other in clandestine color, 
of course, is at the other end of the spectrum. I'll go back and do this, which is the infrared, and that's that really long wavelength. And there, instead of like the UV, where the energy is so strong it'll break amino acids apart and destroy DNA at a certain point, except if you're protecting it, infrared is what we call heat and it shakes up the molecule and makes it rotate and do all other kinds of things. So it doesn't really destroy the light going in, but then the light can't turn from photons into electrochemical. So here, uh, just to give you an example, uh, certain flowers, despite all you've learned in college, um, actually are warm-blooded and they can raise their temperature. And so they are very attractive to bumblebees especially. Uh, your cat, the reason it has white in its ears um, is, is to reflect all uh, wavelengths. And the reason, uh, of course, the way into the body is through the eyes. Uh, that's the window that light passes into. So that light also uh, has a lot of blood vessels and is big heated. The nose, as everybody knows, of your cat is cold. Uh, I wanted, I'll just do a few in here. Uh, notice the dragonflies standing on their head. Um, this is to minimize the amount of heat that they're picking up. And the coloration of bodies is a combination of res responding to heat and the need to communicate with color. So what we see here is that a dragonfly will have colors right near its armpits or wing pits. And It'll, it'll just hover like this or sit like that. The heat from the earth or the rocks will come up and it'll catch and it's formed a mini greenhouse. And that works best if it's a dark wing near the body. So certain, especially northern dragonflies, will hold their wings out like that and the heat will come up. And the reason for the color is not for communication or advertising or hiding. It's simply there to um, be, to hold the heat and let the body heat up. Similarly with penguins, uh, we find all the penguins get together and put their black backs to the sun, which absorbs heat, and their white bellies, they try to hide because that would reflect the heat. Uh, I'm not gonna go on to all of that. Um, this led and shaped another whole group of animals that in order to get the infrared, how, how do they connect the infrared into an imaging system? So we see the rattlesnake has another hole under its nose that absorbs the heat and the heat then gets connected to the visual system and the rattlesnake can protect itself from ambush, can find cooler areas in the hot sun and of course, it can use it for defense or it can use it for hunting prey. We see the same thing in the night, the blind snake at the bottom, which is an underground snake, and the top is a beetle that actually transfers its heat from the back part of its body and can detect forest fires at 50 to 60 miles. It then changes that heat into some kind of visual image and flies and lays its eggs in the still glowing embers of the sides of trees. So, The last of the clandestine colors are really false co colors. Um, they're the colors of polarization. 
And these are the ones we know least about. Um, you can see in DNF, um, by using polarized glasses, you can actually see the shrimp and the fish, which you could not see. And what we're finding is that uh, on the top is a butterfly uh, using polarized, uh, again, a polarized filter. So, but this is a very interesting uh, part because um, what we're finding is that, I'm going to skip a lot because I'm going too slow here. Um, what we're finding is that the way you see polarized light is the way you do it with glasses. You get what is called a match filter. It's a filter that will only see light in one direction. So if light's coming in this direction and your polarized light, your eye is this direction, you won't see it. But if you went back in that direction, the light comes in and you know, uh, and, and you know directions. Um, on the right, although it's not... To right. On the left, although it's not a good picture, is an octopus looked at in polarized and non-polarized light. And in the upper right, you can't see it, is how the sky itself is polarized, and that's how many locusts and other insects migrate. So what, what is happening here is that you're getting a matched filter, which is very, very similar to what is called iconography among art credits. You see a cross you know what it is, you know, you see. And what we're seeing is the very early evolution of one aspect of aesthetics, which is that you create icons in the eye itself. So a vertical and a horizontal in human beings, um, the polarized light here. And that iconography creates a, it's not really a color, but it's a special kind of light, so they call it false colors. And what's interesting about that kind of thing, is it also creates a private channel. It means that you no longer um, need to be broadcasting to everybody I am here. You can make a aesthetic surface that can only be seen in certain polarized or iconographic filters. This gets us, and I guess I have to go faster here. Um, the, I may have to skip a lot. Um, uh, this just gives, gives you an idea of, the, of how important the surface is to light, but it's all, again, like it is in painting. It has to be a compromise between other things. In painting, of course, bacteria, dust, acid, all of that begins to eat at the painting. And to make yourself have a long life, you have to, of course, um, do, protect yourself. So my favorite plant in this is the sacred lo lo lotus. Sacred lotus has an incredible self-cleaning device. You can see in the middle, water does not seep into it. Instead, it just washes over it and cleans all the leaves, which increases, of course, the amount of sunlight it can absorb. The flower itself is, the flower itself is one of those flowers that can make heat and so its pollination is based on the attraction of uh, insects coming to a hot flower. What, what we see then is that you can make surfaces by pigments, by what's called structural colors, um, colors that have no pigment whatsoever, but diffract or bend the light to create them. That's what the back of cat eyes is like. And, you know, can't go into all. Um, 
but other ways to change the surface and get very interesting in, in nature. This is an Egyptian vulture that looks for iron oxide deposits and then uses it as cosmetic. It actually goes in and puts it all over its body and turn at just the way you'd put it on your body. This snail, on the other hand, has, uh, encourages a garden on the back of its shell so that it now has created uh, an aesthetic surface to match the background by actually gardening on its own shell. This, of course, is, um, on, there's an, no one has written, but there's a really interesting artistic military complex. Um, no, no, I mean, I, I say this seriously, you know. Like, the, the army has really been concerned um, with camouflage, for instance, like this man, and it's led to all kinds of cosmetics. It's led to all kinds of uh, design fashions. Uh, led to Andy Warhol doing a kind of whimsical uh, camouflage series. And, but again, it's the application to the surface, just like the vulture, and face paints and tattoos. Then you get art that's separate from the body. Uh, this is a kite nest where the bird actually um, tries to disguise that it has eggs by bringing anything white that can break up the pattern of having eggs in it. Um, the genius of all this, of course, are the bowerbirds um, that make their own little art galleries and then fill the art galleries either with snails or um, blue clothespins or whatever their particular. Uh, to become a good bowerbird artist takes four to six years. A young male will sit in the bushes and hide himself and watch another male for four to six years in order to know how to create this particular uh, art scene. And then of course with the advent of really capitalism, um, pa paint, painters uh, started to make paintings that could be movable. They were no longer frescoes, they were no longer large statues. So we have also developed a detached from the body art scene. Um, let me In doing that, um, the other principles shared throughout the planet or that you can, if you break the contour line on a creature, it'll become bland. It'll just fade out and become part of the background. Here's a copperhead doing that. Um, and notice how the body is broken up so that there's no long contour line. Here it is in black and white to emphasize. Uh, also notice that the patches have a white line next to them and that makes it look like a 3D image that isn't the smooth surface of the snake. You'll find, if you after you do this for a while, you, look, you go into a museum and you just look at it and you say, oh, this guy's doing the you know, southeastern copperhead. And, um, and, it, and if it's not working for you, one of the great things to do, by the way, is to look through your legs. You go to a museum, put your backside to the painting and look through your legs and all these other parts come out. It's, it's a naturalist trick. Uh, the other thing to do besides breaking the contour is to take random pieces of your background and incorporate them into your 
uh, art object, your artworks. Remember, you know, uh, this is art for life's sake, not art for art's sake. Um, so here is Verushka, um, a model who loved doing stuff like this. She was a maniacal environmental something. I don't know what. Uh, and then in the lower corner, you see the same thing being done by plover eggs. Um, but one has to be careful. Uh, for years, in that upper right-hand corner, um, people said, oh, zebras were striped like that because it would blend with the environment. And if they had horizontal stripes, like the zebra in the Kilimanjaro picture, it was easy for predators to see. And then some guy went out, and he took all these different horses of different colors. He put them out in the field. And what they found out is that actually, if you get a certain um, width of stripe, polarized light bouncing off the body of the zebra gets confused. You can't tell where it's coming from. And that was really important because tibanid flies, which spread huge number, I was bitten by one in Senegal, and you just slap it and slap it and slap it, and it's still there. And it, it's just like rubber and pulls out all this blood. So horses, or the horse family in particular, is very susceptible to all the diseases transmitted <coughs> by tibetan flies. So that's why you see horses of a single color, especially, all wearing protection against so instead of it being some kind of communications camouflage, it turned out to be a different ecology. Finally, what I want to um, say here is that um, although poets like to say beauty is truth and truth is beauty, actually, it doesn't really work. Um, in this case, um, nature is great at forgery, at deceit, at making attractive fakes, and poses the question, which really was a development of the mind, what is authentic? So we now see that the evolution of discrimin discrimination, discriminatory awareness, the evolution of desire, and the evolution of what is authentic, and how to judge that, is, is in a large part because we are such a visual creature. So you just saw it in that microcosmos, this particular um, flower that imitates the body of the bee that was trying to mate with it. But we also see, um, I'm sorry, we also see up there the um, caterpillars that join together to look like dead leaves, the butterfly that looks like another dead leaf, uh, Verushka again looking like a tree uh, and showing what mimicry can do by cosmetics. Um, and Look at this very carefully. Some of you have seen this. This is the wow picture for art and science. That was uh, letting go of some ink, and now watch it in reverse. Watch as the uh, darkness spreads and the body becomes more pimpled. It's almost impossible to find the eye at the end. So, so that's probably the most famous art video of the last 15 years. I'm serious. I, people, I mean, people watch it. I watch it dozens of times. <laughs> um, 
So what I want to say, if you look in here at the head of Balzac, you'll see two priests make up his face. And what Dolly was very good at was taking uh, a double meaning of two images. Can most of you see that face with a two, the skull with two, well. And finally, what I want to do is talk about how, um, Stuart, do I have, am I over time? Okay, thank you. <coughs> Excuse me, I lost my voice. So notice what happens when you look at color. The color dominates and we're looking vertically. If it's all white, we look at shape all horizontally. And this um, tension again between shape and color and tonal contrast is also part of the evolution of discriminatory awareness that you see in almost all creatures from single-celled organisms up to us. In fact, um, white, red, and black, or almost black, um, have, are really the three crucial colors, and I'm calling black and white colors, uh, on the planet. And because of that, they have begun to govern the, the ecosystems uh, in certain areas. Uh, note what happens, white reflects all co colors. So you get too many colors, you can't discriminate them. Black absorbs almost all colors, but notice that it doesn't absorb every color. Matisse was in love with black because he knew that he could never make a pure black, and he loved the slight colorations of black. And then red is, is remember, it's that long wavelength. It won't harm the body right at the edge of heat and is much more, and to make the red, you just have to be, um, how would you say it? Trying not to use physics here. Um, you just have to purify the color by masking out all the other colors. And we'll see, this is how it's done. So, sorry, there's a little science here. <coughs> uh, pigments, this is a carotenoid, a carotene. Pigments, in order not to blow out, are always very long. Not only the very long, but the carbons have double bonds that you can see in the upper one. And the, common, the more bonds there are and the more uh, structure there is uh, to the molecule in length, the more it can take the photons and the electronic energy and move it up and down and around. You see at the very end, it actually moves around and comes back. So what's interesting about red is that's one of the big, uh, uh, the carotenoids make the Roy colors, red, orange, and yellow. Uh, the black color comes in part from melanin, which is one of the oldest pigments on the planet, um, and was originally there as a protector uh, from ultraviolet light. In fact, Chernobyl, if you go into the belly of Chernobyl, there's a black fungus growing on the walls and no one could believe it because of the amount of radioactivity. And it turns out that this black fungus has a melanin that can take the radioactivity of Chernobyl and turn it, like we do with photo, like plants do with photosynthesis, turn it into the energy that makes ATP so it can grow. So melanin, no one's ever 
characterize the melanin molecule. When you try to figure it out, it falls apart. So, um, but melanin is one of the other main pigments. There are four main pigments on the planet. White comes in many colors. Um, so here we have typical uh, creatures of the planet, very different, that are black, white, and red. And we can see right there that the black and the red are highly contrasted, and the red is highly contrasted because it's of its purity. Notice that all these three plants are extremely dangerous. <laughs> um, the, the frog is a poisonous dart frog. The two mushrooms, I think everyone knows the Amanita by now. Again, we see the red, white, and black in, this is a prairie chicken, and again, it's about danger to each other. They're both uh, competing for females. But we also see it for identification and care for the young. These are baby fledglings. The mother wants to know that it isn't a cuckoo that's laid an egg that might be in her nest. And one way she can do that is by looking at the patterns of the mouth, which are red, white, black, once again. We also see um, that it can be very helpful for insects who are, are seeing, some insects do see into the red, certain butterflies. Uh, but we're seeing the, ro the, keratin, the keratin colors, the red, orange, and yellow, uh, with nectar for, for both hummingbirds and for butterflies. And finally, we can see it also, it's the McDonald's uh, caterpillar. McDonald's has red, orange, and a black sky try to attract you. But notice that there's no emotional value given to the advertisement. That has to be figured out by the animal. Is this an advertisement saying, come here, I desire you? Or is this a danger saying, red light, yellow light, stop sign, hold it off? So we can then see what happens. Um, Van Gogh, of course, understood the ambiguity of red and yellow really well. And <clears throat> this is just one of his paintings. Um, of course, car companies understand it. So look at how the red and the yellow stand out with the white in the parking lot. And, um, but also solar engineers now understand it. And they can understand they can get a better transformation if they color their solar plates red and you wind up red, white, and black. So uh, two quick stories. Uh, this is an aphid that 30, 40 million years ago uh, ate a fungus, and the fungus could produce carotene. Oh, by the way, animals cannot produce carotene. There, there's no, this is the exception. Um, carotene is only produced by plants uh, and certain algae and cyanobacteria. So, um, when this aphid ate the fungi, it co-opted the gene, genome, for creating carotene. How it did it, no one knows. Um, so all of a sudden, what was the advantage? Carotene is not only just a color, but as you health freaks know, it's an antioxidant, anti-tumor, you know, it does all those kinds of things. And so 
all of a sudden it had one advantage, but it didn't no longer had the advantage of the green aphid. And right now in its ecology, there are years of orange and there are years of chlorophyll um, aphids. So this is another way that color enters into the governance. Here's a picture of, uh, look at the bottom, the red part is definitely the carotenoids, and that's ice algae. And the ice algae, um, then is eaten by all the phytoplankton. Notice if it goes into the ones that are chlorophyll related, that the carotene is suppressed. You can't see the color. But once you have translucent animals like the shrimp, then you can easily see that there's carotene there. That, in turn, is eaten by fish, larger fish, seals, polar bears, the fish, arctic tern. The point is, is that what's controlling this because, let's see if I can go back here. Look at the lower molecule. The lower molecule is exactly half the carotene. That molecule is retinol. It's the crucial molecule for us to see. It's the thing that forms in our eye that allows us to uh, transfer light back and forth uh, turn it off. So what we're seeing here, although it looks like the polar bears on the top of the chain, actually the polar bears at the bottom of the color pigment chain. And because he would not be able to see to get his pigment out of the seal or the fish unless he had already uh, been connected through the food web to this red um, ice algae. So I just wanted to make it clear that, you know, what we what we have here is um, a governance of life by a pigment. We can see this really now when there's a whole bunch of invasive plants all over the country that produce um, a red berry, but it doesn't have carotene. It's a mimic in a way. And what's happening to the cedar waxwings is you can see that in the tails are becoming less red and so the whole sexual life, the whole sensual life of the cedar waxwing is changing because females preferred that little red line at the bottom, but males no longer can produce it <coughs> because they're eating invasive species. The other thing about, um, I only have two things more to go. Um, the only thing that we understand is that because of the long history, not, not only do we have polarized icons or iconography, but we have certain things like a bullseye that have been around in part because modern eyes are based on a surround, but also because it's the best way to get total maximum contrast out of a line as you make two circles and you have a lot of interface between the light and the dark. And so, what we're finding throughout the animal kingdom and um, perhaps in other places is that the bullseye is an icon. And if you look, this is a Robert Delaunay painting, and if you watch your eye move around, you'll see it moves from one bullseye to another. Um, and this just shows you different ways to make, to maximize the bullseye.
We find it again in the eyes of the peacock, <coughs> which uses that centered surround to imitate the eye in its courtship. We find it on the back of, the, of the, this little owl, and that means that any predator approaching it is going to see these huge eyes and think twice uh, before it hits it. So what we find here is that we have all, what we, what we are having is something that lasts like eyes as icons and an iconography of polarized light and certain things that disappear. And what we're seeing is that, ima again, images are colors in a slice of time. They're not eternal beauty. Here is a Surat painting, um, redigitized. Um, I think that's going to be a new form. People are going to have very thin screens on their walls. Say, well, I'd like to see what the painting looked originally. Then they'll press a button and say, oh, this is, you know, 20 years later. What happened to um, the painting after bacterial and dust got it? And this is what it looks like now. And which is the painting that is most beautiful? Become, and so we see that we're already having a new understanding of does restoration make it more beautiful? Or as the Japanese would say, it's called wabi-sabi, um, does time make things more beautiful? And as the bowl gets older and more shiny and a little chipped, uh, does that make it less beautiful? And this is the, the second crisis that has to do with First has to do with changing from reflective surfaces to emitted light. And the second is trying to understand what do we mean, uh, what do we want to call beauty? Um, my mentor, a guy named Frederick Jameson, big postmodernist, um, said to me, all artwork is an installation. You just have to decide how long you want the installation to last. Um, Van, Van Gogh wrote a beautiful letter when his brother Theo pointed out that he was using lakes to kind of dye instead of oil paints and that they weren't going to last. And indeed, they've changed his paintings drastically. <clears throat> and he wrote book back and said, my paintings are like flowers. They can, they'll last as long as they want. They're, and when they're gone, there'll be other paintings. And so he had that same sense that uh, this tension about what is beautiful, what is deteriorating, um, is not eternal beauty. So um, I don't have time right now, but my daughter asked me, she said, how do you get from being attractive to being beautiful? And they're actually, that's where that desire comes in. You start ask, adding uh, hope, is an, is an attribute of beauty, contingency, the freedom, the noticing of freedom, like in this poll, is, a, is part of beauty. So to go from attractive to beautiful requires certain little steps that have yet to be mapped out by biologists. Uh, yeah. Um, so what is this is doing, actually, the screens and the sense of what is beauty, is maybe making museums, and to some extent galleries, less important. Because now if you can have a thin, high-definition 
and it'll be very high definition soon, you could have a painting that looks as good as the Mona Lisa original hanging on your wall. And you can push a button and see that the sky was actually blue, not that foggy color. So, so what we're finding is that this is a new area, era of creativity. And creativity is really being challenged. Um, Skip this. Um, and um, people are now actually planning their artwork to actually change. So this is an artist in the Caribbean who has his gallery underwater, uh, made many statues by taking uh, face masks of people on the island who are now turned into cement and are becoming a coral reef. And so you can revisit this same gallery at a different time and find that it's close, it has more and more fish, has fewer and fewer recognizable people. And that is the basis of, you know, of his art. Um, I would like to end by just saying that this is the oldest artwork by humans that we know of, maybe 70, 75,000 years. And the Aborigines in Australia have never retouched it. it. It was done by a very shallow etching into the rock. <clears throat> and then a yellow fungus got into the rock and started eating the rock. And then a red bacteria joined the etching and started working with the fungus. Uh, the yellow dots you see are actually fungal bodies. The red is the bacteria and the black is the fungal body, is not the fungal body, but the uh, actual, actual fungus. They mixed up with each other, got these kind of purplish um, tones, and over 70,000 uh, 70, years, they've kept their colors and changed it all the time by, if the weather, weather was warmer, the bacteria thrived, the weather got drier, the fungus thrived. So this is probably, um, the best artworks for life that I know. <laughs> um, and I just want to end by saying um, that as a, oh, let me see what else was, that underneath a lot of what uh, we do is the desire after the Navajo prayer to walk in beauty. And if, even if you're a scientist, you're trying you know, trying to fill some kind of weird, mysterious desire um, where you're tracking beauty, curiosity, where the self is, where the self ends, where the non-self is, the outer world. And um, what we find is that since when, throughout the planet, when there's a quiet time, like at sunset, and you're never quite sure what the light is, or at twilight near a coral reef, or in a museum or a church, that that quiet time is a time where naturalists, birds, I've sat with birds at sunsets, um, if you're underwater, you can, you, you'll see that all life comes to a halt. And there's something about the transition between daylight and nighttime 
at nighttime and daylight. And that's why it, that leads to the understanding that at that moment, you can actually look at an object without the fear of danger and without the concerns of that something may be poisonous, going to eat me. Um, and that moment is a really old moment in the history of the planet. And I think it has the contemplative beauty that many of us uh, cherish has not been understood that that's a Gaian aesthetic. And I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Let's go sit. Sorry I, took, sorry I was so slow. That's okay. Yeah, bring your water. We got more here, too. Okay, okay question from Alex. Can you talk about the role of peripheral vision in our experiencing of the world? And by the way, do other creatures have peripheral vision? Some, some creatures can see 360. 360 degrees. Yeah. That's peripheral. Yeah. <laughs> uh, spiders have eight eyes. Uh -huh. And depending on where they live, they just stack them up to wherever they need to look. So they can see, many of them can see 360 degrees. And our, per, our edge vision is uh, a little more ghostly compared to the kind of focused vision. What's yeah. that about? Well, in, in the evolution, when from um, ambient light, which didn't necessarily have to be visual, to directed light, which meant that you had to focus in a particular direction. So the eyes got smaller. And then they suddenly get so small that you can only see a certain amount of um, light in front of you. And that means that getting less light, it takes a longer time to integrate that light into the body. Hmm. And so you now not only have less light, but you also have a longer integration time. And so at that point, um, the most creatures start looking around mm -hmm. because they can't see it. And so peripheral vision is one way to maximize the amount mm -hmm. of light that'll come in so that even if it's just a little light, it'll speed up the integration time. Mm -hmm. And that's that whole thing that uh, light is a sense or sensuousness at a distance rather than touch, mm. you know, the blind men and the elephant. Mm -hmm. Or hearing is such a big wavelength that it, only in water can it go very far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the other odor, taste, taste has to be done close up. So that's why vision became, because it can be done as a distance, mm -hmm. and you can create a virtual image of the world in your head, mm -hmm. it has become the dominant uh, for, sense on light, for land animals. I sense future humans getting smaller ears and noses and bigger and bigger eyes. <laughs> yes. uh, Catherine asks, which creature has the greatest range of color spectrum that can see like both infrared and ultraviolet? So anybody can do that? Yeah, a f certain fish, actually. Why? Why do those fish do it? Uh, they do it because the, they're getting, they go up and down. Mm -hmm. So when they're up, they want the infrared, which only goes in very short. And then when they're down, they want the U, more of the blue in the UV. But I think that's, I think it's, and they'll go from, <coughs> excuse my voice, 
they'll go from about um, 600, which is, which is UVA, up to about 1,000, where we have to stop at 700. Mm -hmm. so, but it, it's odd that it's a fish. <laughs> um, Ryan Phelan asks, uh, who's crazy for owls, uh, what do nocturnal animals see? Different ones, different things. <laughs> um, the hawk moth can see color in starlight. Um, jaguars can't see any colors at all at night. Uh, but they have very good, because of that, to pat them, the thing we were talking about, the flashing of the cat eyes, that takes in this, the light and it concentrates it like a mirror into the retina to, so it can see more. Um, actually, the people who made Microcosmos are about to come down to the Jaguar Reserve to make a movie just on that. So um, I can tell you a lot more next year. <laughs> um, but um, certain animals, uh, like that blind, uh, blind snake I showed you, use the infrared uh, as a way of sensing, and they feel the heat in their little holes there, but then they transform that heat into an image. Hmm. So at night, a lot of creatures like that, that are right near the surface of the soil, uh, are transforming heat into imagery in ways we don't really understand, to be honest. And um, so that would be an added color. Um, what other colors would there be? Well, the other great colors are the bioluminescent fish. Um, there's a fish that dangles a red light maybe 3,000 feet below the surface, and it transforms a yellow light that it has through filters into a red light. When the other fish sees it, it comes up to check out the red light, and then it either gets eaten or they mate. But, uh, <laughs> but the red light is very um, short distance because it's such a weak light, I'm mm. saying that. So in order to, but it can be seen at, in pitch darkness. I mean, that's the deepest darkness. Um, two questions are related. I'll go through both of them. Scott Aller asks, with regard to color temperature, what do you think humans can do to optimize our use of artificial light throughout day and night for our specific biology? Um, Kevin Kelly asks, since 50% of humans now live in cities, has anyone studied the luminosity profile of cities? And uh, yeah, it's what colors modern life. Um, so we're in lights here. Are these the good ones, the bad ones? Uh, well, city outside, good ones, bad ones? I hardly look at them. Um, <coughs> well, Kevin, um, I've been trying to pull together all the information about urban luminosity. Uh, you get odd things like um, the palm trees in Miami have never flowered because there's light all night. And they, don't, they need a trigger. Some plants need long day lengths. Uh, there's a really wonderful story. If you've read in the old far Farmer's Almanac, it says, only plow on the dark of the moon. And everyone thought that was a superstition. But it turns out that if if you plow on the light of the moon, it only takes a very few small photon flux to trigger nightshade. Mm -hmm. And you'll get nightshade all over the fields if you plow 
on a moonlit night, and then you have to add pesticides and you get into that whole ecology. But if you plow on a dark night and you have less than a half minute of, of enough photon flux, then the nightshade won't grow. So what's interesting in the Midwest, of course, now they plow at night using big spotlights mm -hmm. on gigantic. <laughs> and they wonder why they have to keep on adding more and more pesticides mm -hmm. at the same time. So even in the ecology of farming, now we see uh, that those kinds of things take place. Now, um, I could go in, I mean, obviously luminosity kills 200,000 birds just on the East Coast who are migrating uh, at night, mm -hmm. you know, every fall. So luminosity is definitely changing uh, the ecology of what's going on, especially with migratory birds. So what are some surprising advantage taking going on? I mean, Ryan and I live on a tugboat and right next to the dock and there's a light on the dock and then a line that goes from our tugboat to the dock and every night there's a black crown night heron there fishing right. in the light from the light on the dock doing very well, thank you. Exactly. And I, I think probably fights with other black crown right. night herons no, for that particular ideal hunting site. Right. Yeah. So are you seeing, creatures are often pretty quick to adapt to things. And if there's a lot of city action going on and it's increasing and it's a relatively uh, constant new environment to adapt to, what sort of things are we seeing in terms of color and light that, that animals or, or plants are adjusting to the way humans manage light? I don't think we know yet. Okay. I mean, I don't think anyone's really It's a good really question to ask. It's a good question, and uh, all we know, we know more about plants in a way, mm -hmm. uh, because different, the sodium vapor, the mercury vapor, the incandescent, goes on and soon to be LED lamps, mm -hmm. um, all have different effects on different species. Mm -hmm. But does it really matter in the city where there aren't that many species anyway? I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, what they'll do is change the horticulture to adapt to the Come on, you've taken us on field trips, you know, and uh, we barely get out of the parking lot. There's so much <laughs> I, I didn't have my flashlight. <laughs> um, no, I mean, actually, um, yeah, there's a lot going on in cities. I don't mean to say that cities are a washout, but, um, but you know, all I'm saying is that a different ecology will emerge there. Mm -hmm. For instance, pyracanthus, which is this orange berry that a lot of people like to uh, plant back east. Uh, that's the one that makes birds drunk. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole new phenomena of urban robins staggering around the front lawn. And so, I mean, we are, um, and they'll, and they enjoy it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're seeing the nature of desire change. And mm -hmm. you could put up a little neon sign, you know. Um, but now, you know, hey, I understand earthworms weren't in North America until Europeans brought them. So, what did, did we not have robins before? I mean, the you know, red red robins pulling up the. No, it was just one species of earthworm. Right. It wasn't all species. Oh, okay. So there were other things from DNR. Yeah, okay. but you know, um, I I'm trying to think. What was the question before the one that Kevin asked about urban? Um, Kevin Kelly's saying 50% of right. people live in cities now. Have we studied the luminosity profile of cities? And he's also sort of asking what color is modern life? 
red, black, and white well, for a start. But <clears throat> yeah, but, but it depends on the street lamps. I mean, really, the street lamps are determining. Mm -hmm. uh, so in Africa, for instance, there's a kind of kite, that, just like peregrine falcons are getting adapted to the city. There's a kind of kite that is all over the city. It loves it. You know, it loves the rats, it loves the mice. Mm. And so, um, but the, the color, there is no generalization about the color of the city. Japan loves a billion colors in their city. They love it to look like Las Vegas, essentially. Mm -hmm. While most cities uh, where I live in Tucson, uh, it's a law that you have to cover all street lamps and only use sodium vapor light in order to protect the ast astronomy business mm -hmm. on the mountains. So again, I think it's a local luminance locale issue mm -hmm. that each local luminance will decide, you know, what, it, it's like um, some streets want street lamps, others don't. So I, I, don't th I don't think you can make a generalization yet. Do you think, um, well, okay, we look at, You've been coming from this long-term perspective <laughs> yes. since light, since life, both long-term stories, and this is the Long Now Foundation. Um, you've been telling a story that has a certain arc so far, I think, and does that suggest how more of the story plays out in coming centuries, millennia, et cetera? Well, as I said, <coughs> if we continue the way we're going, uh, you know, even Kindle and reading is now emitted light. Mm -hmm. The emitted light is really going to change the whole nature of, you know, how humans exist because, you know, I was a, and so were you, but we were book nuts mm -hmm. and we read by reflective light, whatever the light was, and we read intensely. I got a Kindle paper right now and I'm so pleased because it yeah, blows well, at me. See, but I mean, that's the change mm -hmm. and that's going on. And How come uh, I like it so much? Am I, am I somehow phototropic? Am I, you know? You know, Stuart, I don't really know why you like it so much. <laughs> are, are we drawn to emitted light? We like sunlight so much all these uh, millennia, and, and now we're being able to make our own light. It emits, and are we drawn to that? It's that well, we're stuck in front of the computer screen. And well, in the colored believe. lights, we are because of the purity of the light. Like neon. Really? Yeah. I mean, the eye goes towards these... Um, like in Las Vegas, and that's mm -hmm. why they do it. You, you know, you, if you see a certain pure light, or if you're McDonald's, you put the yellow next to the red, gives mm -hmm. the black sky, and you know, pump out the odors. And um, but, you know, I think it's really we're we're at a frontier. I mean, I think this is really a new frontier. Is I mean, science following this frontier, or is it just sort of happening without a lot of analysis? No, without a lot of analysis. There's not, I mean, the things that science is doing is, you know, in 20 years, blind people will see. Mm -hmm. You'll have little video cameras that go through your eardrum mm -hmm. that connect into your visual system. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to see, so the blind will begin to see the nature of local luminance locales will be mm -hmm. very predominant so that, you know, like the Bay Area, there'll be just an art scene there Mm -hmm. And then that, that art scene will cl clash maybe with an L.A. art scene mm -hmm. and produce more stuff. And that's how things get globalized or worldwide. Is, is, and we've see, we see that all the time in nature where you'll have two 
um, locales with different color materials, techniques, mm. traditions, mm -hmm. and suddenly they'll come together and you'll get either a meshing at the border or you'll get a whole third thing coming out. And um, that's why you know, I said that you can't understand the nature of attraction or blending or forbidding except if you look at the local light hmm. in nature. Yeah. I mean, hmm. now that we're connected all over well, Maybe cities will start to... Tucson's already getting its version of the local light. Yeah. So last question. Your talk and basically your life, you've done a whole lot of converging, sometimes colliding science and art scientists and artists and they don't talk to each other <laughs> well <laughs> no, they some do but. some do so uh, imagining that this wants to go forward um, artists come around and ask you uh, if I was going to get some science that would help me do more interesting art what science should I study outdoors look <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then no books. No books. Okay. Not for not for the moment. Got to get out. Got to get outdoors first. Outdoors, look. Okay. A uh, scientist comes to you, young scientist, says, uh, "I like what you're doing, and I would like to be aware of art as I do my science. What art should I know about?" That's more difficult, and you know, my my heart is where Malcolm Margolin is, uh, in that you look at your local materials, your local techniques, and you look at the history of what could be created from that, because that's a tight ecology. Mm -hmm. And you start there, and you, you know, and... So in a sense, you're looking at native art you're talking about, or...? Yeah, well, mm -hmm. yeah. Or people who are, in a sense, um, trying to understand local materials. Okay. So, like in Bolinas, what we did is we found a vein of blue clay and so the first thing you did is tell all the ceramics, you know, try out this blue clay, hmm. see what you think of it. You know, see what can actually come from, it's like the watershed talk, mm -hmm. see, see what your local aesthetics are. And then, you know, obviously even, you know, the Navajo and the Hopi, they traded for abalone shells mm -hmm. all across the continent. So you're not trying to stop trade. Mm -hmm. But um, I think for scientists tend to want to read more books mm -hmm. rather than go to an art class and actually try it out. They should learn to do art. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Yeah, just, you know, not be embarrassed if it's ugly. <laughs> you know, just... Uh, Make it dangerous and it'll be beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, re I remember being in Africa and watching a cheetah run in front of me and it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. I mean, it was she's stretching out and suddenly it made this gigantic turn and leaped on the back of a Thompson's gazelle and just cut its throat. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> this was beautiful. Is that beautiful? Mm -hmm. You know, is, is B as beautiful as A? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's when, how I started my talk, is that you have to start out by saying all is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Even the death of the Thompson's gazelle. Mm -hmm. And then work back to see what it is in your mind you're making a judgment on. You know, what, how did you decide that wasn't beautiful? In the art critics call it abject beauty. Abject beauty? Yeah. What does that mean? Um, 
if you've ever been to Alsace-Lorraine and all those Christs on the cross, mm. they have huge thorns in their skulls and they're bleeding all over the place and they're in total agony. Why would any, I, I was there in Rome with a bunch of Apaches and they kept on asking me, what is that about? And why do these people <laughs> hang such a, you know, guy in such a horrible condition? Apaches are not known to be sissies or patsies. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and, they, and they just couldn't believe that anyone would make, spend so much time mm. making such a painful representation. And so, uh, but yet, most Western art critics consider those things absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the Thompson's Gazelle. Right. You have to go back and kind of, and that's why it's a, that's why I love being a naturalist. Because mm -hmm. I'm always, you, when you use a screen and you're getting something the second derived, you're not going to get those moments where you're going, oh my lord. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the octopus is as close as you get to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can watch that endlessly. It's my new... Tonka, something. <laughs> so, um, but but I, I think that's the, uh, you know, abject beauty is a very interesting concept in a way, mm -hmm. and um, you see it a lot in war war photography. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, what a beautiful photograph, mm -hmm. and you realize the guy's been just massacred by an AK-47. So, um, what is that line between? Um, ugly beauty and beauty beauty. And how do you do that? And nature's not gonna give you any answers. So, right. so, th but, so there's something you do with your own aesthetic. Yeah, I, I think it's a personal meditation, for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, I think that that's where, um, I mean, people like Susan Sontag. Sounds like you're saying if it disturbs you, give it some more attention. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do that nature all the time, mm -hmm. you know, you suddenly get eaten by ants, you give it a little bit more attention. <laughs> it's tough on meditation when you're being eaten by Yes, ants. later. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I was going to say one other thing. So, one more time, and then we'll call it an evening, because it's getting late, is, is you made a point in there that, uh, you know, question from your daughter, attractiveness versus beauty. And there's something else that beauty is setting in motion, and it was hope, freedom, what was all that? Yeah, um, at a certain point when something's attractive, you memorize that, you put it maybe into the bodily unconscious, whatever you want to call it, and there it sits. And then, in a way, it becomes the imprint for looking at other things, and it becomes a transcendent image. Hmm. And at that point, you've moved from attractiveness to a transcendent attachment mm -hmm. to some image. For instance, uh, Van Gogh, I'm using him tonight just because there are too many artists. Um, Van Gogh writes to his brother Theo and says, um, you know, while I was painting this, I remember this etching from my childhood. Mm -hmm. You realize he has no books, no computers, no mm -hmm. images, and if you add up all the images he refers to in his letters, it's 1,200. Hmm. So he was holding 1,200 images in his brain that he could Rolodex at any time mm -hmm. while he was painting. And that's what I mean by the receptives. So he had, he'd invested in that transcendence. This wasn't something, he wasn't looking it up 
online. He no. was um, in line. Right. Uh, where he'd taken it in. Right. And then worked with it. Yeah. I mean, he was a genius, though. I mean, he was bipolar, among other things, so he had one of those brains that if it started working, he could just memorize images. Hmm. He had a photographic thing. But, uh, but anyway, when, when you're going from attraction um, to beauty, one of the things that gets added is this idea of transcendence. Mm-hmm. because you've now kind of experienced. Another thing that gets added is an understanding that to be beautiful, it has to have some kind of, um, what do you call it, almost freedom of the moment. In other words, um, you see a lot of computer art, for instance, mm-hmm. that's just too thought out, too many fractals, you know, mm-hmm. way too many fractals. And um, instead, you look at the opposite, let's say, like Jackson Pollock, mm-hmm. and all you see is someone who had something in his mind when he was mm-hmm. doing it, but the actual brush strokes, or stick strokes, whatever you want to call them, were, were very free. They were, mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, he drank too much to get there, but, um, but that is another part of what beauty holds. So like Navajo medicine blankets are never completed design. Botswana baskets are never have a complete design. They always want to leave a little room to escape the per- what the Western world prefers, which is perfection. So it's the opposite of what the Western world, at least at a certain period of time, wanted, mm-hmm. which was to gain a total harmony, balance. God, you kids out there who go to art school, I hope I'm not undermining you, but um, you know, you don't need to divide the canvas into three unequal parts, with, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, the composition. You know, com- uh, you know, the best person about it is a one-page document by the guy I mentioned, Ho Xie, uh, his Tang Dynasty. He just lays it out and says, you know, if you're going to do it, there's a metaphysical part, which is the qi, the energy of the painting. And he says, I can't tell you anything about that. Either you got it or you don't, you know. I mean, and then he goes on and then says, uh, he calls them the bones. The brush strokes have to be the bones of mm-hmm. the painting. And then he goes through the right placing of objects. Mm-hmm. And then he, and he ends up, I mean, there are 10 parts, but he ends up with saying that um, one must understand the convention that I was talking about, the iconography and the tradition, the phylogenics, genetics that come out of it, and then from there work out of that. But unless you've gone through those other, you know, unless you're I don't think a, a, painter, a person can paint unless they've learned to draw first. Mm-hmm. And so they have to draw and draw and draw. Someone like Arthur Okamura never stopped drawing. Mm-hmm. You'd be sitting and, and you'd be drawing something. It didn't matter what, you know. And, or making kind of erotic origami. You like to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, but um, I think that that process for scientists would be very revealing. Mm-hmm. If only because they would start and looking at nature in another way. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you draw, I always draw, not because I want to be an artist, but because by drawing, I, can, I start seeing things I wouldn't see otherwise. Drawing is a way of seeing. Yeah. And we got the basic guidance here, which is go out, look. <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.